This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're on Chapter 3 of Artful Crimes, where I detail crimes committed by and against artists. In this episode, one of the most recognized figures in modern art is gunned down by a woman who felt slighted by him and men in general. But was she truly a feminist or merely mentally ill or a combination of the two? Join us for Chapter 3 of Artful Crime, Andy Warhol and Valerie Solanas. Valerie Jean Solanas was born April 9, 1936, to Louis Lou Solanas, a 21-year-old bartender, and Dorothy Biondo, age 18, in New Jersey. She had a sister, Judith, who was two years younger. Valerie, by her own account, was a daddy's girl and very close to her father as a young child. Valerie's parents separated when she was only four years old, although her mother wouldn't officially divorce him until seven years later. Valerie recalls her early years being fraught with fighting between her mother and father. Valerie's parents either wouldn't or couldn't care for their daughters after the divorce, and the girls were sent to live with their maternal grandparents in Atlantic City, New Jersey. As a child, Valerie was described by her family as very bright, pretty, witty, naughty, aggressive, charming, and an early genius. She could read and write before the age of six, composed her own song lyrics at the age of eight, and was playing the piano quite well by the age of seven. Valerie describes her childhood as idyllic. But there was another side to Valerie. She could be a difficult child. Her family called her rebellious and anti-authoritarian. She hated to be told what to do and wouldn't obey rules. When she was five years old, her grandmother recalls, she spanked Valerie with a belt. Valerie just laughed at her. There always seemed to be two sides to Valerie. She had a heightened sense of justice and was known to stand up for other girls who were being picked on by boys. She would fight them to make them stop. But she also indulged in petty crime by the time she was an adolescent. She was caught shoplifting more than once. Her sister says Valerie was funny and opinionated and always wanted to be a writer. Judith would remain close to her sister, and they kept frequent contact until the last 10 years of Valerie's life. Valerie's mother was mostly non-judgmental about her daughter's behavior. Whether she ignored it, accepted it, or simply didn't know what to do about it, she would often chalk up her misbehavior, her petty criminal activity, and later, her promiscuousness. She began her sexual experiences when she was still a preteen by simply commenting, that's just Valerie's way. Valerie's mother, Dorothy, remarried in 1949 to a man named Edward, or Red, Francis Moran a piano tuner, when Valerie was 13 years old. Her stepfather, Red, thought Valerie was strange. He didn't like her. She never obeyed him or accepted any authority, he later said. Valerie began to rebel even more. She didn't like living with her mother and hated her stepfather. She began skipping school in junior high. Her parents then transferred her to a private school, Holy Cross Academy, but she continued to act out. She assaulted a teacher, a nun. She then ran away from school, hitchhiking to Baltimore to her aunt's house. She was brought back to her mother, who then enrolled her in public school. Valerie didn't fit in there either. She was teased and bullied by the other students because she dressed and acted differently and didn't conform to gender stereotypes, very uncommon in the 1950s in America. In 1950, when she was 14, Valerie was sent to a boarding school. She remained there for the next two years. 
It was away at school that Valerie had her first homosexual experience. Valerie would begin to identify as a lesbian, but had sexual experiences with both male and female partners. At her new school, she excelled academically, earning straight A's in her senior year. She would also fall in love for the first time with another girl. Valerie would later say that this was the only time in her life that she was ever in love. But there is some question as to whether this boarding school was actually a home for unwed mothers. In the early 1950s, becoming pregnant out of wedlock was scandalous, and young girls who found themselves in this situation would often be sent away until after the birth to keep the pregnancy a secret. Valerie was 14 years old and pregnant. She gave birth to a girl who was named Linda Moran in 1951. Linda was raised by Dorothy as her own daughter and believed that Valerie was her sister. Linda only learned as an adult that Valerie was her mother. Valerie never spoke about having a daughter. The family secret was kept for six decades. Later, Valerie would even deny having children to her psychologist. The only person she ever told was Louis Warren, who was her partner for four years. But she never told him who Linda's father was. This still remains a secret. In 1968, Valerie would report that she had experienced sexual abuse by both her father and her stepfather. Valerie's sister Judith would confirm that she believed her father had molested Valerie. She said it happened when Valerie would visit him on the weekends after her parents' divorce. The visits began when Valerie was just six years old, and Judith says she was too young to remember the details of those visits. Lou Solanus was a happy-go-lucky guy whose extended family remembers him as a fun father and uncle but he was also an alcoholic. And as a bartender, he was around alcohol all day long. He also had a quick temper, others recall. If Valerie was sexually abused by either her father, stepfather, or both, this would have contributed to her hatred for men that she so clearly expressed in her adulthood. It also might explain why the identity of her baby's father was never revealed. But this is just speculation at this late date. Valerie, however, still loved her father. She would stay in contact with him, writing him postcards and letters, detailing the news of her life. She ran away from boarding school at age 15, and then left her mother's home to live with her father. Dorothy and Red had moved to Virginia, and ultimately, Valerie found herself living with them there. It was at this time that she began seeing a much older married man who was a sailor just back from the Korean War. Valerie became pregnant again at the age of 15. Her second child, David, was born March 31, 1953. The baby's grandparents wanted to raise David. They made a deal with Valerie to adopt David in exchange for paying for her tuition to the University of Maryland. Valerie lived with the family until she graduated a year after his birth. She continued to visit David until he was about four years old, when the visits abruptly stopped. David never saw Valerie again. It was after David's birth, some report, that Valerie began to speak out about her hatred of men. In 1954, Valerie was attending the University of Maryland at College Park. She did well academically, earning a B average her first year, but she was always short of money and didn't have many friends. She was considered bright but difficult. She often relied on her friends to pay for meals and for other handouts, and then felt slighted when feeling used, they stopped offering. She would then become angry and seek revenge. Once in retaliation, she peed in a roommate's orange juice and then put it back in the refrigerator. After several reports of her aggressive behavior, the school administrators sent her to counseling. She rebelled by overturning a table in the counselor's office. She was written up for disciplinary action and almost expelled. But her intelligence made her stand out and often saved her from being kicked out of school. 
She was brilliant, a creative thinker, and passionately dedicated to her education. Valerie's professors were impressed by her. She majored in psychology and worked in the experimental psych lab. One professor described her as bright but difficult. She was often angry, rebellious, aggressive, and intense. Valerie also came out as openly bisexual in college. Valerie was a talented and compelling writer. She contributed to the university's newspaper, writing about injustices against women. She used humor, satire, sarcasm, and anger to make her views known in her articles. She gained a following from female college students, but some male students complained to the faculty about Valerie's columns. It would later be reported that she worked as a waitress and also a prostitute to pay for her living expenses while at college. This is still debated by her family members, with some saying they believe it to be true because they know how promiscuous Valerie was then and also how desperate for money she often was. But others say this is merely rumor and innuendo. Valerie did marry a man briefly. She had dated him for a short time, but this was no romantic elopement. The man was a Greek national and needed a green card. Valerie says she married him to help him become a citizen. Of course, many believe that she must have been paid for this favor. The marriage lasted only six months. Valerie graduated in 1958 with a degree in psychology. She soon applied to a master's program at the University of Minnesota. When she arrived, she was one of only a few women in the program. She felt that the best jobs and promotions were given only to men, and because of this, she was unable to advance in her profession. She dropped out after only one year. She then drifted, living with several men and hitchhiking around the country. She arrived at UC Berkeley in California in 1960, where she took a few classes. She then bounced back to the East Coast, living in New Jersey. She would spend time in Greenwich Village and felt that this was a community where she could belong. It was 1961 and the beginning of the counterculture movement. She loved the atmosphere and felt inspired to write. She began writing a play titled Up Your Ass, described as a gender-bending romp about a character named Bungie and the degenerates she encounters along her way. Valerie now decided to become a playwright. Valerie moved into a women's residence in Manhattan in 1962. She worked at a coffee shop, and again, some say, may have also turned tricks while she worked on her play. She began to shop the play around, first presenting it to a director at an off-Broadway theater. He encouraged her to finish it. She then began to save money to move to Greenwich Village. Between 1962 and 1965, Valerie lived, worked, and wrote in Manhattan. She lived for a time at the Chelsea Hotel in room 606. The Chelsea was an inexpensive hotel that became known as a place where many unknown talents often stayed before they became famous. Some artists and writers would stay there, hoping the magic would rub off on them as well. Famous residents included Bob Dylan, Ellen Ginsberg, Janis Joplin, Patti Smith, and Dylan Thomas. It was also the infamous location where Sid Vicious, lead man of the Sex Pistols, would stab and kill his girlfriend, Nancy Spungen, in 1978. Valerie registered her play with the Library of Congress's Copyright Office in 1965. She then moved to the Hotel Earl for a time, which catered to the growing counterculture population, even having a separate wing for drag queens and lesbians. 1962 to 1967 were productive writing years for Valerie. Besides Up Your Ass, she also read a manuscript she titled The Scum Manifesto and several magazine articles. One she wrote for Cavalier magazine titled A Young Girl's Primer was published in July 1966 
and gained her some attention. The magazine's description of the article reads, How a nice young lady can survive in the city. The easiest way to be comfortable is flat on your back. The screenplay Up Your Ass is described as the fictional companion to the later scum manifesto and is the story of a man-hating hustler slash panhandler slash lesbian prostitute named Bongi Perez. The play takes shots at everything from men to female socialites, politics, religion, and marriage, motherhood, and family. She spent several years on the screenplay, completing the final draft around 1967. She had copies made and advertised it in the Village Voice, selling them for $10 per copy. Early on, Valerie identified the artist Andy Warhol as someone who might produce her play. She sent a copy to him in late 1965. Andy Warhol was born August 6, 1928, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He originally wanted to become an art teacher and attended the Carnegie Institute of Technology in Pittsburgh to study commercial art. He received a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in 1949. He decided to move to New York City to begin a career in magazine illustration and advertising. Warhol began creating art through the use of many mediums, including drawing, painting, printmaking, photography, silk screening, sculpture, film, and music. He began exhibiting his art in the 1950s. Warhol led the visual arts movement known as pop art, in which he explored the relationships between art, creativity, celebrity culture, fame, and advertising. His first solo pop art exhibition was held in New York in 1962. Iconic works including the Maryland diptych, 100 soup cans, and Coca-Cola bottles was shown. He would become most famous for his paintings of iconic objects, such as dollar bills and mushroom clouds, and celebrities like Elvis Presley, Marlon Brando, and Muhammad Ali. Celebrity and wealthy clients requested portraits from him, and he soon became one of the most famous living artists in the United States. In 1962, Andy Warhol opened The Factory, a New York hip art studio that also became a hangout for the rich and famous and counterculture celebrities, quirky and unique personalities who Warhol would cast in his films. They were known as Warhol superstars, Warhol would famously declare that, in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. Some of the superstars were actors, actresses, models, transgender performers, artists, musicians, and drag queens. Some of the people Andy Warhol made famous for 15 minutes included Baby Jane Holzer, Ultraviolet, Ondine, Candy Darling, and Nico. By 1967, the factory was located on the sixth floor of the Decker Building, located at 33 Union Square West, where it would continue to operate from 1967 to 1984. It served as an art studio and film studio and a hangout for celebrities, writers, artists, and the famous, including David Bowie, Liza Minnelli, William S. Burroughs, Debbie Harry, Grace Jones, and Lou Reed. Valerie began recruiting actors for her play Up Your Ass in 1967. She posted flyers in the lobby of the Chelsea Hotel, which resident Arthur Miller complained to the management about. They read, Scum, or the Society for Cutting Up Men, is looking for garbage-mouthed dykes, butch or femme, with some acting ability, experience not necessary, to appear in the garbage-mouthed, dykey, anti-male play, a comedy, called Up Your Ass, or Up From the Slime, or From the Cradle to the Boat, by Valerie Solanus. Auditions were held in the basement or on the roof. She told one actor as she took him downstairs to the basement, Don't worry, I'm not going to kill you. 
A friend of hers then asked her if she would like to appear on The Ellen Burke Show to talk about being a lesbian. Valerie jumped at the chance to talk about her views, and also, she hoped, bring attention to her play that, quote, was in production. Ellen Burke was a staunch conservative and an early example of a far-right shock jock. On the show, he baited her by calling lesbians repulsive and asked her if she couldn't get a man. Didn't anyone ever take you to the prom, he taunted? Valerie tried to talk about the struggles of women in America, but Burke interrupted her repeatedly and kept up his tirade. Finally, having enough, she called him a name. He shot one back at her, and she then jumped up and chased him across the stage. He asked his audience, Have we ever seen anything as sick and perverted as this woman? She grabbed a chair and tried to hit him, at which time men from the audience ran up, grabbed her, and threw her out of the studio. In the summer of 1967, Valerie was evicted from the Chelsea Hotel after two years. Needing money, she was now desperate to get Up Your Ass produced. She met with several theater groups and producers, but even those that liked the play thought it was too blue or too obscene for the stage. Valerie was invited to meet Andy Warhol through Nat Finkelstein, a photographer who sometimes shot events at the factory. He thought Warhol might be interested in Valerie and her play. Warhol thought the title of the play was interesting and agreed to meet with her. When he saw how obscene the play was, he thought she might be an undercover cop trying to set him up on an obscenity charge. Some theater directors wouldn't even mail the manuscript back for this same reason. They were afraid of being charged with mailing obscene material. In response, Valerie dropped her pants and exposed her vagina, saying, Sure, I'm a cop and here's my badge. At the factory, Valerie stood out like a sore thumb around all the beautiful people. They called her Valerie Barge Cap for the army cap she liked to wear. She dressed in manly attire, pea coats and khaki pants, and wore no makeup. Valerie didn't want to be part of Warhol's entourage and balked at being grouped with his stupid stars, as she called them. Instead, she sought out one-on-one meetings with Warhol. She became a polarizing figure at the factory. Some thought her unique and intriguing, others saw her as without personality or charm, and possibly mentally defective. Still, Andy spent time with Valerie mostly in the company of the other superstars, but he sometimes invited her to join him at Max's Kansas City, a bar and restaurant where he ate most of his meals, and sometimes held court. He liked to hear her talk about her feminist views, and he sometimes used her words in the scripts of his films. She was furious when she found out and told him to stop, but he continued. Many of the words she spoke in conversation with Warhol were used without permission for his film, Women in Revolt. Valerie called him a hard son of a bitch, that Warhol, and told the superstars that he was exploiting the women at the factory. Almost none of them got paid, or not much, but they weren't expecting to be paid. Most were there for the exposure, fame, sex, drugs, and fun. Ultraviolet, a writer and sometimes actress in some of Warhol's films, liked Valerie But even so, she warned Warhol that she was a, quote, dangerous cookie, a real bitch. You have to know what she's writing about. You might be a target for her, she told him. At the same time all this was happening, Valerie continued to write her scum manifesto. To give you a flavor of this 100-page work, in it, Valerie writes, Life in this society being at best an utter bore, and no aspect of society being at all relevant to women, There remains to civic-minded, responsible, thrill-seeking females only to overthrow the government, eliminate the money system, institute complete automation, and eliminate the male sex. 
The manuscript was completed in June of 1967, and Valerie Copper read the self-published book in May of 1967. According to screenwriter and filmmaker Mary Heron, who made the movie I Shot Andy Warhol, the book is a complete inversion of accepted values, and more disturbingly, it resembles the better bits of writing by the Unabomber. Valerie was also trying to recruit people for her scum forums or meetings to discuss and carry out the vision she wrote about in the Scum Manifesto. In August of 1967, Valerie called Warhol repeatedly about the scum recruitment and was also asking for the copy of her playback and for him to advance her money for the rights to produce it. He tape-recorded her phone calls, not because he was necessarily threatened by her, but mostly because he liked the way she spoke so passionately about things. However, he rarely returned her calls. Valerie had given him the most complete version of the play in June of 1967 and was excited that he'd agreed to produce and direct it. Whether he had agreed to or not is unclear, but she was convinced it was true. She told people that Warhol was purchasing her script. She kept asking him for details about when he would begin to produce Up Your Ass, but he didn't answer her. Finally, he admitted to her that he'd lost the manuscript. When I finally admitted to her that it was lost, she started asking me for money. She was staying at the Chelsea Hotel, she said, and she needed the money to pay her rent. One afternoon in September, when she called, we were in the middle of shooting a sequence for I, a man. So I said, why didn't she come over and be in the movie and earn $25 instead of asking for a handout? She came right over and we filmed her in a short scene on a staircase, and she was actually funny, and that was that. Initially, Valerie was pleased to be asked to appear in the movie, but after doing so, she began to complain that he never paid her the $25. She was angry and talked to the other actresses about how Warhol was exploiting his female superstars. Those disgusting pigs, men, they're all leeches. Why do you let him exploit you? Why don't you shove a shiv into his chest or ram an ice pick up his ass, Valerie complained. Talking to him is like talking to a chair. A snake couldn't buy a meal on what he pays out. The women got tired of her and wanted her gone. One day at Max's, one of them told her, You dyke, you're disgusting. In response, Valerie went on a bizarre rant about the sexual abuse she suffered by her father. Warhol, never one comfortable with confrontation, ignored the incident. Valerie began to act more paranoid. She was constantly afraid others would steal and misuse her writings. But she also hated lawyers and cops and wouldn't seek help that way. Then Valerie met Maurice Giordia, a publisher and self-described pornographer. He had placed an ad seeking writers. The ad said, We are not interested in anyone famous or half-famous. Our function is to discover talent. Unknown writers are our specialty. You have been rejected by all existing publishers. Well and good, you have a chance with us. We read everything, promptly, discriminately, and optimistically. She brought him her writing, and he thought her play was clever. He signed her to a contract on August 29, 1967. He paid her a $500 cash advance for a novel she would agree to write for him. He also added that the contract would include first refusal rights on her next two book-length works. The contract was far from a legally binding document. Giordias didn't seem that savvy at the paperwork, even including misspellings in his short, vague contract. Not long afterwards, however, Valerie decided the contract she signed meant that Giordias technically owned both the Scum Manifesto and Up Your Ass. Since the contract was vague, she believed that at first the claim was for her next two works after the novel she was contracted to write for him, but now she thought that she had been duped. 
she began to complain bitterly to everyone, even asking Andy Warhol's advice on the matter. Although several people, including at least one attorney, looked at the contract and told her there was nothing to worry about, the document would not hold water in court, she would not let it go. Now it seemed Valerie began to quickly unravel. She began stepping up her harassment of Warhol to produce her play and start filming immediately the Scum Manifesto, with Valerie in the starring role. And she also began to send vicious letters and notes to Giorgias, calling him a thief and a liar, and using her well-known acerbic wit to cut him to ribbons verbally. She addressed her communications to him as Dear Lowly Toad. Warhol stopped taking her calls, and Valerie now believed that Giorgias and Warhol were conspiring against her. Brianne Foz, the author of Valerie Solanus, sums up the toxic mix of Valerie and Andy Warhol this way. In many ways, her relationship with Andy merely formed a center point for many forces moving through Valerie's life at the time. Her growing anger toward men, particularly men with power, prestige, and wealth, her interest in self-promotion and fame, particularly as a writer, her emerging connection with the avant-garde, queer, and drag scene in New York, her wobbly mental health, and the intensifying deterioration of her rational thinking, and the classic contradiction between her desire for acceptance and her outright rejection of all organized groups or movements. Andy tapped into all these, particularly by showing a spark of interest in Up Your Ass and Valerie's Tour de Force, The Scum Manifesto. She also began, after a long break, to contact her family members. She sent numerous letters and made frequent phone calls complaining about her treatment at the hands of the two men she believed were trying to rip her off. Her mother and sister became concerned about her mental state. In late January 1968, she took some of the $500 advance she had received from Giorgius and hit the road, traveling to California where her sister now lived. When she arrived, her sister was shocked at her appearance. Her clothes were filthy and ragged, her hair was dirty and matted, and she arrived with only the clothes on her back and a box filled with copies of her book that she was attempting to sell in the streets. Her sister cut off her waist-length hair, scoured her from head to toe, and purchased her a new set of clothes and pajamas. She stayed with Judith for a few weeks, and while there, wrote numerous letters to both Warhol and Giorgius, alternately pleading for help and accusing them of stealing from her, and then threatening revenge. Her only topic of conversation with family members was about the rage and frustration she felt at the two men. Her hate speech against men became even more vicious. She then traveled to San Francisco and Berkeley, where she continued to spin out of control, alienating people on the streets where she tried to sell her books, and scaring roommates. One moved out until Valerie left, afraid to be alone with a woman he felt was mentally unhinged. Finally, she arrived at her sister's office building, wearing every item of clothing she had purchased for her, including the pajamas, and demanded she give her money to travel back to New York. On the way back, traveling by bus, she later admits she purchased guns in both Reno and Vermont. On June 4, 1968, Valerie had been back in New York for a few weeks and had been unable to find anyone to publish her scum manifesto or produce her play. She was broke, homeless, hungry, and desperate. That morning, she stopped by the home of an old friend, Mae Wilson. She had asked her to hold a bag full of her belongings for her, and now she retrieved the bag. She removed some of the items from the bag, including an address book and two handguns, a 32 Beretta automatic, and a 22 Colt revolver, and placed them in a smaller duffel bag. Next, Valerie traveled to the actor's studio on West 44th Street, intent on speaking with the famed director Lee Strasberg, to get him to produce her play. 
When she arrived, an actress, Sylvia Miles, who had just landed a part in the new movie Midnight Cowboy, answered the door. She was the only one there at the time. She thought Valerie looked weird and felt a little threatened by her behavior. She just seemed off, she said. She lied and told her that Strasburg wasn't scheduled to arrive until late in the afternoon. She locked the door after her. Next on her errand list was a visit to Margot Fiden, the playwright who had produced Peter Pan on Broadway when she was only 16 years old. They had never met, but Valerie was able to secure her address. She showed up at 9 a.m. on Margot's doorstep. At first, Margot says she didn't know if Valerie was male or female. She was wearing a heavy wool coat, a dark cap, and fingerless gloves, even though it was a warm summer day. Valerie politely asked to speak with her, and Margot, just coming home with her 18-month-old baby from a doctor's appointment, asked her to come inside. Valerie spent close to four hours telling Margot about her play and the details of the Scum Manifesto, and her plans to work towards a future where men were eliminated. Men would be killed, she said, because they were inherently evil. She described how men were the source of all the world's problems, and without them, corruption, abuse, and greed would be eliminated. Margot thought she was a very intelligent person, with a well-thought-out answer to every question she put to her, but she also believed her to be a very emotionally damaged woman. After her presentation, she asked Margot to produce her play. Margot told her, You're wasting your time. I won't produce it. Valerie then pressed her hands against the bag she was carrying to show her the outline of what was inside. Do you know what this is? she asked her. Margot replied that it was a gun, very aware that her baby daughter slept just a few feet away. Valerie told her she would produce her play as she took the gun out and pointed it at the ceiling. Margot still refused. Valerie then told her if she continued to refuse, she would shoot Andy Warhol. Margot told her that she shouldn't do that. It was wrong, and even if she did, she wouldn't produce the play. She said she never believed Valerie would harm her or her baby, but she did believe that she was dangerous. Valerie left her apartment at 12.45 p.m., and Margot immediately got on the phone to the police. But while Margot called everyone from the local police precinct and police headquarters to the mayor and the governor's office, no one would take her call seriously. She tried then to call anyone who she thought could get in touch with Warhol himself to warn him. Valerie now went to the factory to find Warhol. He was not in. She left, arriving again at 2.30 p.m., now carrying only a small paper bag. She announced that she was waiting to see Warhol, but was told that he was not in. She continued to return up in the elevator several times to ask for Warhol. At the factory that day was Paul Morrissey, Warhol's executive producer, Fred Hughes, an assistant, and Mario Amaya, an art magazine editor from London. Warhol finally arrived at 4.15 p.m. As he arrived in front of the building, he encountered his boyfriend, Jed Johnson, and Valerie, who was standing at the side of the building. They traveled up in the elevator together. He noticed that she seemed fidgety, twisting a brown paper bag in her hands. He also noticed the heavy clothing on the warm day and that she was wearing lipstick, which was unusual. It was something she reserved only for special occasions. When they arrived on the sixth floor, Warhol remarked to the men there, doesn't Valerie look good? Morrissey said she did, but then joked, you gotta go now because we have business, and if you don't go, I'm gonna beat the hell out of you and throw you out. Valerie backed away, but had a funny look in her eye, he said. Hughes came out and saw Valerie and said, you still writing dirty books, Valerie? Warhol walked away to take a phone call. Valerie then took out the 32 Beretta automatic from the bag and pointed it at him while he was on the phone. Nobody seemed to notice. 
At the first sound of the gunshot, Amaya yelled, Hit the floor! Warhol was the only one who saw Valerie with the gun and shouted, Valerie, don't do it! No, no! As she fired the second shot, Warhol dove under a desk, but she moved closer and took a carefully aimed third shot that entered his right side and exited the left side of his back, causing great damage to his spleen, stomach, liver, and esophagus before penetrating a lung. Mario Amaya was crouched nearby on the floor, and Valerie turned and fired at him. Her fourth shot missed, but the fifth shot hit him in the hip and exited without hitting any organs. He ran towards the back of the office and crashed through a door to escape with Valerie in pursuit. She tried to force the door open while Amaya tried to block it closed with his body. She then turned her attention towards Jed Johnson, who was in Warhol's office. She tried the doorknob, but she thought it was locked and gave up. She then walked towards Fred Hughes and raised the gun at him while he pleaded with her not to shoot. I have to shoot you, she said, aiming the gun at his chest. He begged her, please don't shoot me, Valerie. You can't. I'm innocent. I didn't do anything to you. Please just leave. She then walked to the elevator and pressed the button, but then returned and aimed the gun at his head. She fired, but the gun jammed. She took out the backup revolver, but just as she was about to shoot, the elevator arrived with a ding distracting her. She was very agitated now, Hugh said later. He told her, there's the elevator, Valerie, just take it. Valerie darted into the elevator and left. There was pandemonium in the factory. Warhol was conscious but delirious. Billy Name, one of the factory regulars, arrived and began to cry when he saw Warhol. Warhol told him, don't laugh, Billy. Don't make me laugh. The police were called and an ambulance finally arrived that took Warhol and Amaya to Columbus Hospital. Most people thought Warhol was surely dead. Margot Fiden had been watching the news, waiting for the inevitable, and when news broke that Andy Warhol had been possibly fatally shot, she was devastated. At 4.51 p.m., Andy Warhol was pronounced clinically dead. They opened his chest and massaged his heart. His heart stopped beating for one and a half minutes before he was successfully revived. He was then rushed into surgery, which lasted five and a half hours. The surgery was successful, and the next day he was listed in critical condition. He was in and out of consciousness for the next few days and heard about the assassination of Robert Kennedy two days later in a fog. He didn't know yet if he was alive or really had died. The scene in the hospital lobby was bizarre. Many of the avant-garde celebrities and Warhol superstars were in attendance, in wild clothing and day-glow wigs. No one was allowed up to see Warhol except his mother, described as a tiny, frail old woman in a babushka who kept muttering, My boy, good boy, good religious boy, they kill him, my Andy. Between 7 and 8 o'clock the night of the shooting, Valerie approached a rookie cop in Times Square, handed him her weapons, and said, The police are looking for me. They want me. He had too much control over my life. She was then taken to the 13th Street Station to be questioned and booked. Afterwards, she was handcuffed and was being transferred to the jail where throngs of reporters had already arrived to catch a glimpse of Andy Warhol's attempted assassin. When they asked, Why did you shoot Andy Warhol? She answered, I have a lot of very involved reasons. Read my manifesto and it will tell you what I am. She was charged with attempted murder, felonious assault, and possession of a deadly weapon and held without bail. Valerie was first sent to the Women's House of Detention, where she then underwent psychiatric tests. Her IQ was recorded at 131, but she was also diagnosed with schizophrenia, chronic, paranoid type. In August of 1968, 
She was transferred to Matawan State Hospital for the criminally insane. After a few months of medication and treatment, she was returned to court where she was then released in December on $10,000 bill that was put up by a friend. Warhol was not informed that Valerie had been released, and on Christmas Eve he received a call from her demanding to see him. She also demanded that he drop all charges, put her in more of his movies, buy all of her manuscripts for the sum of $20,000, and arrange for guest television appearances for her. Warhol was terrified. Paul Morrissey took the phone and told her they didn't want anything to do with her. She then told him, I can always do what I did before. On January 9, 1969, Valerie was rearrested for making threats against Warhol and also Maurice Giordius. Giordius had published the Olympic Press edition of the Scum Manifesto the summer after Valerie was arrested. She was placed back in the Women's Detention Center and then transferred to Bellevue State Hospital in May. On June 9th, she was sentenced to three years, including time served on the lesser charge of reckless assault with intent to harm. She was in Matawan State Hospital in April 1971 when she escaped. She was missing for two months. On June 16th, she was found and recommitted to Matawan. That same month, she had served her full sentence and was released. Not surprisingly, once released, Valerie continued to threaten and harass a variety of people, including Maurice Yorias, Robert Sarnoff, CEO of RCA, and multimillionaire Howard Hughes. In one letter, she claimed to have been kidnapped and demanded $50 million ransom for her own return. She also then arrived at an editor's home and threatened him with an ice pick. The editor pressed charges, and she was sent to Dunlop Psychiatric Hospital in January of 1972. She escaped from the hospital a month later and was rearrested. She kept being released from psychiatric hospitals, returned to jail, sent back to the hospital, and then released. She would continue her harassment of publishers and editors with ever more bizarre assertions. She believed they were spying on her through a transmitter they'd implanted in her uterus. Finally, two of the men she'd continued to threaten sued, making a deal with the hospital that she would not be released until she stopped harassing them. She did stop and was released permanently. In February 1975, she moved to Florida to be near her sister and was subsequently sent to South Florida State Hospital. It was the last time she would be admitted to a mental hospital. Later that year, she moved back to New York and worked as an editor for a magazine. In June of 1975, she published her own edition of the Scum Manifesto when the original publisher went bankrupt and the rights reverted back to her. In 1977, she was interviewed by the Village Voice, where she claimed that an organization called The Money Men were giving her a $100 million advance to write an autobiography. She also claimed that someone paid off the doctors to have her diagnosed as insane, and she still called Warhol her enemy. In a follow-up interview, she called the shooting, quote, a moral act, and considered it immoral that I missed. I should have done target practice, she explained. Valerie Solanas disappeared from public in late 1979. Her mother filed a missing persons report. Valerie was later discovered to be living mostly on the streets in Phoenix, Arizona. The police were very familiar with her, getting frequent phone calls about an insane person in the streets creating a scene. In one report, she was found in the middle of an intersection, wearing a nightgown and crowing like a chicken, stopping traffic. She was a fixture as the crazy lady for the next three years in Phoenix. In 1985, Valerie moved to San Francisco. She lived in the low-rent Bristol Hotel. She was subsisting on Social Security payments. 
Residents of the hotel reported that she had a methamphetamine habit and prostituted herself for drug money, sometimes wearing an old silver lamé dress when she walked the streets. On April 25, 1988, just a couple of weeks after her 52nd birthday, Valerie was found dead in her hotel room. Brianne Foz, author of Valerie Solanus's biography, wrote about the sad scene. By April 25, 1988, no one had seen Valerie for a week, and the rent was overdue. The supervisor at the Bristol Hotel, Lev Kraisman, used a passkey to unlock her room. Upon entering, he discovered Valerie kneeling on the floor of the one-room apartment, and her upper torso was facing down on the side of the bed. Her body was covered with maggots, and the room appeared orderly. The police report continued. Kraisman did not touch or move Valerie, but opened an unlatched window in the room due to the foul odor. The coroner's report gave the cause of death as acute and chronic aspirational bronchopneumonia and centribular pulmonary emphysema. The report also noted cachexia and fatty metamorphosis of the liver. Valerie likely died from pneumonia brought on by incurable and smoking-related emphysema. The police recorded Valerie's death date as the day Kraisman discovered her body, April 25, 1988. Though given its deterioration, Valerie's actual death likely occurred two to three days prior. Valerie had knelt for days, decomposing in her small room. Valerie was cremated and her mother had her ashes buried at St. Mary's Catholic Cemetery in Fairfax Station, Virginia. Dorothy then burned all of her manuscripts and belongings and threw away her personal items. Let her rest in peace, she said. She only gave one interview about her daughter after the shooting. Dorothy died in July of 2004. Her husband, Red, had died four years earlier. Valerie's father, Lou, was killed in his bar by the brother of his girlfriend in 1971. He suffered a fractured skull and bled to death on the floor of the bar. He never talked to reporters about his daughter. Andy Warhol died on February 22, 1987 in Manhattan. He was recovering from gallbladder surgery and died the next day in the hospital of cardiac arrhythmia. He was buried in his hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, next to his mother and father. He was 58 years old. Valerie's son David only found out that Valerie was his mother in 1993, long after her death. He works as a photographer and a PR consultant in the Washington, D.C. area. He is a feminist and a prolific artist and says he only figured out where he got his creative talents from after finding out that Valerie Solanus was his birth mother. He never got to meet her and says he thinks if he had, it may have helped her. He did meet his half-sister Linda Moran, and while he was interested in getting to know his Aunt Judith, she was reluctant. He did, however, meet some of her children, his cousins. After finding out about his mother and her past, he visited the reference desk at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., to ask if anyone could tell him about Andy Warhol. A young art student took him back to the reference area and found a picture of his mother in a book about Warhol. As soon as I saw her picture, he said, I thought, that looks just like me. My whole world started whirring. In 1996, the film I Shot Andy Warhol was released. Lily Taylor plays Valerie Solanus, and Jared Harris plays Andy Warhol. Fact and fiction blend in Hollywood's portrayal of Valerie Solanus. The young woman with so much talent and promise might have become a feminist leader and a published author and playwright. Instead, her demons and her mental illness made her infamous as the would-be assassin of a famous pop art icon. 
That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our marketing assistant is Nancy Chen. Special thanks this week goes to our research assistant, Sabrina Atkinson, for her help on this episode. You can follow me on Twitter at Upon a Crime and on Facebook and Instagram at Once Upon a Crime Pod. Until next time, be good to one another.